Welcome to Krakoa. I mean, Graphic Policy Radio. This is the podcast for people who spend as much time arguing about the mutant metaphor as we do thinking about actual systems of oppression in real life. This is the podcast for mutant revolution, also developing mutant trade policy and questioning the value of the nation state as a political structure. That's right. Today, we're going to be talking about the series fans have dubbed Hoxpox, a.e. House of X, Powers of Ten, Powers of X. However you want to refer to it, it is the ambitious relaunch of the X-Men titles under the leadership of Jonathan Hickman, partnered with artists Pepe La Raza, R.B. Silva, and Marte Garcia. This is the relaunch of 2019, um, and it took place over the course of two different simultaneous interwoven series, and now it is moved into the next phase, which is the Dawn of X relaunch. Um, I don't think I've seen comic book fans talking about the like meat and content of a mainstream comic book series with this level of obsessiveness since, I mean, kind of just, I don't even know how long. I think even the beginning of the new 52 had people like, there were more people talking about it perhaps, but there was less rigor and obsessiveness dedicated to analyzing the text and the significance of something in it. This has really been a pretty singular moment in X-Men fandom on the internet as well. Um, Just so many active conversations happening everywhere. And I'm really glad to be able to curate this particular one for the Graphic Policy Radio listeners today. Um, Joining me, I have two amazing guests. I am joined by Chingy Legay. Chingy is a writer, comedian, advice columnist, and critically acclaimed ex-girlfriend. Her work focuses on queer dating, pop culture, and her weird sex life, and can be found at Out Magazine, Jezebel, Them, and Autostraddle. Welcome to the show, Chingy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I I saw you talking about the show on, not the show, about uh, X-Men on Twitter some, like, a little while ago, and I was like, this is someone who needs to come on to talk about Hoxpox, so I'm really excited we could make it happen. I'm very excited to talk about it. And I mean, it's weekly, so it really has felt like we're all like watching a show as it's airing. That's how I felt about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I just, I mean, I, yeah, it's a show to me. (laughs) Yeah. I think that that's part of the reason it's felt that way on Twitter for sure. Yeah. Um, And joining me back again, no surprise to our listeners is Stephen Adwell. Stephen writes about the intersection of history, politics, and pop culture in the people's history of the Marvel Universe for graphic policy, and at Race for the Iron Throne on WordPress and on Tumblr, uh, where he's been covering Hoxpox issue by issue. Definitely check those out if you haven't. I've gotten a ton out of reading them. Um, in his day job, he teaches public policy at City University of New York's School for Labor and Urban Studies. And psst, it's me, the sinister with the mutant gene. My mutant power is overthrowing tyrants and being absolutely fabulous. That's right. It's me, Elon Eleven, a.k.a. Twitter's Elana Brooklyn, a.k.a. Sinister. So thanks for coming and joining us, everyone. Um, you know, I, I like wasn't planning on even following the series because I've been so frustrated with Marvel lately that it was only like people having conversations on social media that were ones that I felt like I really wanted to be a part of because they were so politically complicated and nuanced that actually got me to reading the series in the first place. Were both of you guys sort of excited for this just based on the announcement or, or how, how were you, how did it win you over? 
Um, for me, it was, I heard about it from the announcement because I basically keep up with solicitations every month. I'm a weekly comic reader, uh, but I was a little bit nervous at first when I heard about it. I mean, I like Hickman's work. I haven't read all of it. I'm a big fan of his Secret Wars, um, and I've mm -hmm. always been a big fan of X-Men comics. Uh, and I was like, oh, they're going to cancel all the main books and just have one book for a while, which sounded ambitious. And uh, I instantly loved it. I was super into it. Uh, I have very mixed feelings, as a lot of people do about the previous run uh, of Uncanny with uh, Rosenberg. <laughs> it's, a, it's a complicated yeah. run there. Uh, but um, I really like where things are going now with uh, Dawn of X and I loved, yeah, I loved the series. Yeah, that that's very similar to how I feel, which is that like I had been not really enjoying X books for a while, like Death of X... Inhumans versus X-Men, Extinction, yeah. Rosenberg's run, like, it was just getting depressing, and also, like, uh, um, X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold had not really been hitting their full potential for a while, and for various reasons. Uh, X-Men Red had been kind of the closest thing to, like, really enjoying It really had, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I was really intrigued by the announcement. Um, you know, I'd, I'd read some of Hicksman's stuff. Like, I knew that if anything, like, it would... I, I didn't know whether I would like it. I just knew that it would be swing for the fences. Uh, and it turned out to be, like, really, really specifically my jam. Like, you know, who else is going to write an issue of X-Men where they go to, you know, the Davos World Economic Forum and, like... We, we have a big discussion about mutant economic policy. It's, it's yeah, I mean, we're, we're like graphic policy, like that's our brand. It's like we want to have those conversations. But one thing I just can't get past, though, is like for me, the last X-Men comic I read was Leah, Leah Williamson and um, Chris, ba ba Chris Pachalo uh, on Emma Frost Black. Which the X-Men Black amazing, issue, yeah. One of the best Emma Frost comics. It was so good. It was like a single issue. It was like one of the it was one of the best Emma comics ever. And I just kept thinking to myself, like, well, okay, so like as soon as I begin reading this new X-Men story, Emma Frost is no longer the Black King, which is something that like was the whole fight that, you know, that was that Leia wrote for her in her single issue. And I just kept thinking about like who Marvel who does Marvel choose to get to tell their big flagship stories? Who do they give the freedom to, to tell whatever kind of big story they want? Who gets allowed to tell highly political stories and who doesn't? Like, Cinna Grace was trying was to write about that. a gay Iceman story, right? And, like, they're looking over his shoulder every two seconds telling him if he makes it too gay, they're going to fire him. And then Hickman... Okay, guys, this, everything is spoilers from here on out. Just know that we all like these comics. We think you should be reading them. If you haven't begun reading them yet, go for it. These are the kinds of X-Men comics where people go to Davos and have fights about nationalism. Anyway, here on out, there be spoilers for the whole Hox Pox series. Um, meanwhile, so yeah, so Cinna can't even write a gay comic. 
Sinna Grace, a gay man, is not allowed to write a gay comic about a gay X-Man without people looking over his shoulder. Meanwhile, Jonathan Hickman, who's straight, gets to write a comic which like which basically, you know, puts it as canonically clear that Logan and uh, and Cyclops and Jean Grey are a throuple. Like and he gets to write a comic that's extremely political throughout. And he gets to reinvent a line without like being babysat and like questioned the whole way through. And I think he's done amazing things with it and he should, but like, why is it only him who gets to do that? I mean, it's, I don't even think it's just only him. It's just a recurring trend. I mean, who made Iceman gay? Bendis. Like who created Miles Morales? Like all characters who have been like big (laughs) political things like white men are creating like it's great that they're doing this these characters it's not that it's like bad i mean the Iceman thing was a little messy uh but the original five coming back was one of the actual was actually what got me back into x-men comics and i actually loved it for the most part um Mm -hmm. a lot more than i thought time traveling original five x-men would please me but um yeah it's i mean it's a running (laughs) thing of like who are the ones telling the big stories with like the big arcs it's usually like white or white passing like male writers like almost most of the time um and Mm -hmm. i mean that's just part of a systematic thing and hopefully that'll change with people like leah writing and i'm glad he's using his power yeah yeah like i'm glad he's using his power for good not evil lord knows Hmm. um but it's just like He's, he's able to make things way gayer than queer artists are allowed to. It's just, like, ridiculous. Yeah. I actually feels like I'm... Yeah. I'm excited that uh, Vida Ayala, Leah Williams, and uh, Tinny Howard all have, like, series, X series coming out. Mm-hmm. And, like, are all queer mm-hmm. creators who, like... I'm very excited to see what they do with X-Men, especially... Like, I followed Leah's work for a minute. Her What If Magic is one of my favorite... Was my favorite comic oh, last year. Oh, so good. And I'm really excited to see the sequel so with that good. Doctor Strange the End solicit. Um, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, these people, like, seeing queer people write these stories. But still, there is the, like... It's all... It's a writer's room now. It is very much like TV in that there's a writer's room of uh, comic creators who are, like, all building the universe together. But it's all... The showrunner is Hickman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the showrunner is editorial, yeah. but the creative showrunner is Hickman. True. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. was, that was, uh, yeah. I, this isn't really a spoiler and feel free to, you know, cut this out if you like, but I did notice on the masthead of Marauders, right? Hickman has a very mm-hmm. specific title and it's not editor, but head of X is kind of a statement. I didn't even see that. Yeah. Yeah, that's not so, a spoiler. Yeah, Hickman edifying his head of X is definitely like that is what he says it is. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, so, have know, we I had just, someone like yeah. that since Claremont? No, no, I don't think I so. I don't think so. Like, I mean, Grant Morrison. Yeah, was just Grant Morrisoning. I mean, I feel like yeah, the biggest reinvention moments we've had were Grant Morrison's new X-Men and then like, but he wasn't writing like a whole line. It was just one title that everything else was like chasing after to catch up to, you know? Yeah, I mean? that's, yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking of is like, you know, Claremont doing, you know, X-Men, but also New Mutants, but also Wolverine and also, you know, Excalibur, but also playing with other people so that, you know, 
I mean, we forget. Like, yeah. it wasn't just him. There were a whole bunch of other people, you, Louise you know, Simonson. back in the day. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, I mean, Bendis had those, had the all-new and uncanny going at the same time, which were, like, those two main stories, and I don't, I don't know what the editorial situation was then, but, uh, yeah, it seems like Claremont was the big example of the last time something like this happened. Head of X. Bendis wasn't head of X. So one of, one of our, yeah, yeah, totally. So I want to jump into a conversation around the mutant metaphor in this comic series. Um, I think that there's, a, the mutant metaphor is something that has been compared to a lot of different things over time, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's like looking at it as a metaphor for race, for disability um, rights, which I think is a really compelling case that Jay Edidin has made on his show a lot, um, for Jewish identity, which is certainly sort of baked into a lot of the Claremont early work, him being Jewish and whatnot as well, and obviously queer representation. Um, and with the foundation of Krakoa as a mutant nation state, uh, we have one of the most, like, this is clearly a, a mutant metaphor kind of story uh, statements that we've had. And it's interesting because, you know, what people's immediate association with that is, I think a lot of it is shamed, shaped by our identity and like what stories we're reading. So, um, you know, it's just interesting to me because like some people hear like, okay, the mutants are founding a nation that is like rooted in mutant identity. And like a lot of my fellow queers were like, yay, queer separatism, we're owning our own space. And I'm queer, but I'm also Jewish, and I deal with a lot of Israel-Palestine stuff in my life. So I'm like, oh no, Zionism, this is going to go badly for everyone involved. And so it was like, how dare you, Ilana? How dare you be concerned that separate, that like founding a country around identity could possibly have negative impacts on people? I'm like, ah. So this has been an emotionally fraught couple of weeks with that in mind. And I'm... I'm super torn. Like, I want to believe that, like, look, mutants are going to build their, like, queer mutant utopia. And I'm also like, man, you know, Israel was supposed to be socialist, and now they don't even let black people vote there. Actually, that's an understatement. They're not just preventing African refugees from becoming Israeli citizens. They're actively deporting them, no matter how long they've been in Israel, and regardless of the fact that they're Jewish. Stephen, one one of the things that you've said was really pointed, which is about like how trying to draw a direct equivalent might not be possible or intended. I agree with that on that theme. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of tricky because like, yes, there is clear stuff about Israel, Palestine. Um, You know, and one of the things that I, I do like is that like Hickman has been careful to like include not just the negative or not just the positive that, like, at every moment there is, like, this undercurrent of, like, what are the compromises being made, uh, what are the potential downsides, you know, people not agreeing on what this means and what direction it should go. Uh, but I was also sort of thinking, like, the the metaphor is, is um, could could be a lot of things, right? You know, we're, we're used to Israel-Palestine because that's probably the most visible thing. But, you know, I couldn't help but think, like, okay, but what about, like, if tomorrow, you know, they decide to announce the Republic of Kurdistan and demand you in recognition? Or, you know, I was thinking about the, the secession of Kosovo or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, attempts by Palestine to gain recognition. 
uh, at the UN that like there's all of these complicated issues or, or you know potential parallels to this like tricky question of you know nations nationalism uh, independence and the recognition thereof and it's 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 really tricky um, you know fitting them into just one box yeah I think the mutant metaphor is Honestly, I mean, best when used loosely, uh, just because it can apply to so many different things. And also, I'm going to just say, I'm like, I love the idea of Krakow. It has plenty of flaws in it, but like, at its core, I think two of the biggest characters to become, that were like, beyond tertiary, that are now central, are Moira and Krakoa. Mm-hmm. Krakoa is a character. Like, oh, it's yeah. not like the city in Sex and the City is a character. It's like, no, Krakoa is alive. <laughs> Krakoa has autonomy and is, like, in charge of what happens. Krakoa has bodily autonomy. <laughs> and yeah. letting humans mm-hmm. on Krakoa without Krakoa's consent is just a violation of Krakoa's consent. It's not, I don't know. I think that... You're right. Bringing yeah. the, like, it's not a colonized land. It's not uh, a land that is in, like, a complicated situation between the people who are from there and not, because it's it wasn't a land. It was the island that walks like a man, uh, Krakoa, who used to murder mutants and is now their home. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I just think it's... Hmm... Yeah, it, it, you raise a good point because I was thinking, you know, uh, in my notes I have, how is this mutant nation different from all other mutant nations? And I think Krakoa is definitely a huge uh, factor. Have, I have the same note. <laughs> yeah, um, because, you know, we've had Genosha, we've had Utopia, we've had New Tion. Like, that part of the story is not super new, but I think Krakoa makes it different because... It's not just the X-Men camping out somewhere, right? Yeah. Or, you know, if mm-hmm. they're camping out on um, uh, 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 Utopia, right? There's an underlying issue that, like, hey, you know, the Native American movement might have something to say about, like, reclaiming that particular island as your own. Um, or likewise, you know, oh, I Genosha. thought it was part of Asteroid M. It was Asteroid M, I actually. It was part of Asteroid M. Oh, wait, yeah. hold on. Am I confusing? But it's still in the waters um, of, right. Yeah. yeah. When, when was, but it's still on the uh, waters off Turtle Island, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I, I thought they were actually on Alcatraz, but I guess they were Alcatraz adjacent. Um, Alcatraz you know, adjacent. Genosha has its own complicated... Apartheid, uh, everything. Apartheid yeah. history mm-hmm. and colonialism baked into that on, you know, even before that. Uh, and, you know, Krakoa also means that the mutant nation is weird and, like, sci-fi. That, uh, you know, my favorite little detail from X-Men number one is that they clean their plates with, like, goo that eats food residue. Which really that, grosses out Corsair, and I yeah, love that. <laughs> and, like, that was the compromise, because before that, like... Krakoa wanted them to have edible plates and like change their you know bio you know their their gastrointestinal tract to do something you know it's like 
this is a really different place and it all functions off of right. like Krakoan biotechnology and these weird flowers that make weird drugs and portals. That means that like Krakoa isn't just one island. Now it's two islands. Now it's on the moon. Now it's on Mars. You know, that's really interesting. And, you know, I think there's all kinds of interesting questions about like, what is the future vision of Krakoa? Like, what is their version of uh, Manifest Destiny? Because if, you know, you can, anywhere that you plant a flower becomes a part of Krakoa, you know, forever a, a part of Krakoa, like, does that mean that Xavier's mansion within the territorial borders of the United States is now a part of Krakoa? What about that, you know, emb- I mean, we, we have this idea of embassies as the as embassy. territory, but, like, potentially they can you know, give those flowers as we've seen to anybody. And all of a sudden that place has that level of, you know, extraterritoriality. Uh, so there's all I mean, didn't kinds this, of like, didn't the story start, on. didn't the story start in like the, um, it was in Jerusalem and it was in the embassy of Krakoa in Jerusalem, right? Yeah. Well, so they like, go to there from the it, embassy in New York and like right. in between they're taking stops on like, you know, the Australian outback and the Himalayas, and you get this sense that, like, you know, Krakoa is this sort of, not what we would consider, you know, like, on if we were to draw a map of Krakoa, like you get, sometimes get in the comics, it's not just mm-hmm. your traditional sort of blobby borders, it looks more like probably a network or a web a network. of everywhere that but, these portals yeah. touch. But embassies legally have always existed as it being part of the nation that founded them. So, like, legally, right, if you're the Russian embassy in America, legally that is Russia. So whatever laws they have in Russia, right? So, but this also means that by putting a flower in Krakoa, then you're like, okay, like, then that means this land in, for example, America, like, is actually Krakoan land. This part of land in Africa is actually, you know, like, it, you know, like Wakanda is not going to want to have an embassy of Krakoa in Wakandan land. That is going to be seceding Wakandan land out to like outside people. Um, so it's like it's it's even more of a claiming of that of that space. There are also like parallels, I think, between Krakoa and how Wakanda used to be before uh, it was opened up to the rest of the world. I mean, it's a separatist land, mm-hmm. uh, that like, mm-hmm. I, I have interesting thoughts about, uh, the, the Wakanda does not need mutant drugs. Oh, I don't, yeah. I that don't think so it's good. particularly mm-hmm. that they, uh, are saying we are the enemies or we are not friends with Krakoa. Cause I don't know that just doesn't read as very Wakandan to me. It just seems like they don't no. want to like say we've been conquered because they haven't been they don't they don't need to be conquered they just can be uh in communication with yeah they don't want to be a client state of yeah exactly and they don't need to be because like wakanda is a similarly technologically advanced society with you know at this point a pan-galactic empire you know uh but what's really interesting is that's how mute, you know, that's how the Krakoan nation state now views them is like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. if they don't want our drugs, maybe they're not our friends. So you do get the sense that like one of the things that 
having a nation state and conducting diplomacy and having an economic policy and a national security policy does is it makes you a little paranoid. Right. Yeah, I can see that. It's yeah, it's a it's interesting. I I'm yeah. <laughs> One of the other things that sort of, this, you know, Stephen, we were talking about, um, you know, separatism, and you had pointed out about uh, oh, yeah. the, the amnesty and release of prisoners. Yeah, so the, the interesting thing is that, like, a lot of people have pointed to uh, the amnesty that is, like, part of Xavier's deal as being, and the fact that, like, all mutants anywhere in the world have Krakoan citizenship as a parallel to the, Israel's law of return. Uh, which, you know, clearly it's drawing from. Um, but I also noticed that, like, you know, the fact that he says, yeah, but you also have to let mutant prisoners go, and they will be judged by mutant law instead of human law. That is way closer to the platform of the Black Panther Party from 1966, where they said that, you know, you have to let black people out of jail because they haven't been tried by a jury of their peers because of, you know, systematic disenfranchisement um, of, of black voters and therefore the jury pools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we really saw this with uh, Sabretooth, where, mm-hmm. you know, he committed a crime on U.S. soil and then got sent to a prison that almost certainly breaks the U.S. Constitution. Um, and I was surprised that, like, there weren't more eyebrows raised over, like, why is the State Department operating a supermax prison where the justice has a hand, like, the judge has a handgun, and, you know, there doesn't seem to be normal rules of law going on. Um, but... I was all there about but at the same time, like we also see what mutant justice looks like on Krakoa, which is a lot harsher thing. Honestly, um, I like, I didn't even think about all that. And then, yeah, it's just, (laughs) he does get to be judged by a jury of his peers. But the thing is his peers send him, they're like, we don't have prisons and we won't execute you. Instead, we're going to give you a fate worse than death and send you to tree hell where you can't move You'll yeah. experience everything, but you'll just be there. That was that was the really weird thing. Is like yep. you could even say like, okay, we're just going to put you in stasis because that's what we're going to do instead, right? We'll we'll knock you out and it'll just sleep forever. But no, we want you to be aware of this. It's like wow, <laughs> sounds like torture. What's, what's, what's really. It is. It's, it it is. So you know, at first I'm sort of like, yes, like free all political prisoners. Right. And then you're like, oh, you're actually not freeing all political prisoners. You want to have mutant have control over political prisoners exclusively. And what was was crazy was just seeing like, you know, you have this the so-called quiet council, um, which of which I think like half of them are villains by our definitions. It's a good amount uh, of ruling that Sabretooth, who is also a villain, uh, is going to have a fate worse than death. And like, you know, people like Mystique. Uh, you know, is a villain who's done a lot of good things too. But there's also villains who just like Exodus has never done anything good. Apocalypse has never done anything good. And like you well, can make these we arguments for real politics. He saved Krakoa. Okay, yeah. sure. Like in the year zero. But like <laughs> you know, a, a, you know, you can make a big realpolitik argument for why you want them on the Quiet Council. And I want us to talk about the Quiet Council in just a little bit. But you can't argue that these are like moral people who should be making judgments about 
prison sentences for people. So you're letting one yeah. group of villains sentence another villain to eternal suffering because he's less intellectual than they are, basically, well, is what it is. I'd also point out, he did threaten to, like, murder all of the judges and their families. And he he does it all the time. You know, That's but, like, like his shtick. Yeah, I mean, it's his yeah, shtick, see, but, but still... <laughs> You you try doing that in a in a court any court of law and see how quickly here's the thing know, they throw the book at you like going to Alana's point like the Quiet Council I mean when Eric and Charles go to Mara's no place they make it very clear the reasons why they picked all of them most of them were because they had a deal sinister they're like it's better if we have him near us uh, they mm-hmm. struck a deal with. Emma and wanted, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh man, Sebastian. Is, yeah, there we go. Sebastian Shaw. I was like, not Black Tom Cassidy. Uh, yeah, Sebastian Shaw <laughs> as like to scare people and also run the Hellfire Trading Company. Um, Apocalypse. They just, I don't know. It's they they had very specific reasons for why they picked most of them, and most of them were because of some prior arrangement. And not because these are the moral people who should be ruling. Yeah, it, you definitely yeah. got a sense that they were like pulling in power blocks and saying like, we want these people mm-hmm. having a vested interest in the success of this enterprise because otherwise they will fuck shit up. Um, but right. the interesting thing is, you know, what Powers of X number six kind of raises the question, is this even the government? Like if it's the big questions are still being decided by... Charles and Magneto and uh, Moira in secret in her little bubble under the island. Are they just like, uh, you know, a Potemkin government and there's like a real power behind the throne? I mean, I think it's, I think it's a little of each. Mm. I think they're like guiding the big moves, but I mean, they did not each come up with the big three laws. Yeah, that is... That is an interesting moment. It's like Moira had, and you know, and some of the other ones clearly have their own plan, but like big stuff can be enacted outside of that. So, shall we talk about the three laws? I would love so yeah, much to talk it. about the three laws. Okay, so um, what? Okay, um, what's the order? So, first law is no killing uh, humans. No killing humans, which is. I love the way that that was developed because you see the whole kind of like uh, constitutional convention process at work, right? Where Sinister proposes like no killing mutants, uh, mostly to just be a dick to Exodus. Uh, And then Jean, you know, Jean Grey uh, flips it and says, well, you you can't kill humans. And Apocalypse is saying, well, you know, we've got to be able to kill other mutants because how else are we going to make people strong? And Storm is like, you're fucking crazy. But you I do kind Storm. of, en- yeah, you yeah. do kind of end up in this interesting thing, which is that like killing a, mu- a human is now a greater crime than killing a mutant because humans can't be brought back from the dead, which is like right. clearly a piece of the whole like mutants are special now thing and i think it's also part of the reason they're trying to make it clear that like there's so many people from issue one who are like mutants are the bad guys now there have been so many Mm. takes like that where it's like i can't relate to these mutants at all uh like but i think that was a very clear point that they are not 
the bad guys. They're not here to kill the humans. They don't want that. They're just trying to have their own independence and the right to live, which they haven't been given. Uh, I think it was an well, interesting... I think that there's something in the... Uh, I was just—I was just gonna say—I think it, it was an interesting point where uh, Mystique was saying, like, "What about when they come for us? What if we're defending ourselves?" And the person to be like, "That's a great point, but let's not talk about that right now." Was Magneto? Magneto was just like, "Who has like that's been his stance his entire career?" He's just like, "No, I think that they're right. We shouldn't do this right now. We should—we uh, shouldn't kill humans." Uh, at all like we can deal with the aspects of war later which has actually been like a recurring theme since the first issue when uh, one of the ambassadors asked about the imperialist uh, being able to move uh, army any distance in a matter of seconds thing you know I mean I, I think that's totally interesting too yeah but one of the things that struck me with the way they talked about it is it's it has this whole tone of being these superior beings who are talking about like stopping animal cruelty do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it sounds yeah. like, well, we don't want to, like, abuse animals. That would be immoral. And, like, it's right. We don't want to abuse animals. That would be immoral. But it's it says a ceiling of, like, benevolence um, of gods being done to, to lesser beings. Um, and also feeling like, well, if they think that we're going to hurt them, they'll be even more likely to try to strike us, which is all of that is, you know, true. But, like, it, um, so there's, like, still this, like, just the, the, the mutant superiority, you know, piece of it is like still part of the reasoning. Yeah, and it is. It's interesting. not that people believe in peace. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it's kind of okay. tricky because just, people should be honest. They they view themselves as the future, and this is one of the other themes that's sort of running throughout the book is like, are they the future? Whose future is it? What does it look like? Um, you know, because they're you know we uh, this is something I've written about in the past like. The language of uh, Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal has been running through X-Men comics uh, pretty much from the beginning. And now, for the first time, mutants are, like, taking it to heart. And we saw there was a really interesting little moment when Emma Frost busts into the trial of Sabretooth and sort of says, you know, hey, we're, we're exercising uh, diplomatic immunity here, let him go. Where one of the cuckoos says, like, oh, look... You know, the lesser beings are playing with tools of civilization, like they're people. And it's like, ooh, they're kind of, you know, humans can only say for so often, like, what if they're, you know, they're the Cro-Magnon to our Neanderthal before mutants start thinking that. Um, so, I, in, unless we have something else, I, I am curious about this, you know, the uh, Krakoan personhood and the second law. Uh, which is about, like, uh, is there going to be, la you know, property rights in land on an island that is a person? Yeah, I mean... It doesn't seem like there are. Like, people have homes on Krakoa and, like, Krakoan habitats. There's the Summer's House, there's the House of M, there's all that, but, like, deep, like... It feels like the second Sebastian Shaw brought it up that he was, like, talking about profiting off oh, the yeah. land. That's like, what it was. Yeah, this is very clearly, like, I want to bring, you know, Western-style capitalism and, like, start turning this, you know, 
this island into little plots of land that can be sold and have futures contracts and subprime mortgages written on them. And Doug Ramsey is like, okay, you know, you can try that, but Krakoa is a person and it will shrug you off. Like, do not wake the slumbering giant, which leads to, like, an interesting, you know, relationship with the land. Yeah, um, and Storm's whole point in that was, like, yes, we can own st- something, but it has to be out in the world, like, out in the world outside of Krakoa. Or, like, I don't know if the habitats built on other places count as their property, or if that's still just, like, the part of Krakoa. Well, that's an know. interesting mm-hmm. question. But so everything Storm, Storm is just super on a roll in the Quiet Council. She's like the most on top of like her game person, I think. But um, I was going to say, but it's sort of like how people that recent bullshit where people were like, well, sorry, I shouldn't say people. The recent manufacturersy in which like Fox News people were upset that uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez got like a haircut, and they're saying, see, like you're not really socialist if you're going to like get a haircut that isn't twenty dollars at Supercuts. And it's like, no, socialism doesn't mean we can't have nice things. It's like, Krakoa doesn't mean that you, like, can't have clothes. It means you can't own, like, land and take over other people's things and, like, have a subprime mortgaging. It's, you know what I mean? Like, I think that they sort of understand the difference between personal belongings and property and, like, that's yeah, thing, well, I mean, that, people are that's constantly trying to conflate. That's, that's been a historical conflation ever since, you know... The idea of, you know, property is theft got redefined from, like, yeah. the means of production to, like, no, you're going to take the shoes off my feet. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, that's right. that's not what we're we're talking about. Um, so the third law of Krakoa oh, kind man. of leads into, like, another way in which we're getting uh, a kind of review, renewed interest in a distinctive mutant culture with Krakoa. That's another thing that makes it different, is that we've had Utopia, we've had Genosha, we've had mutant state things, but that never happened at the same time that there was this interest in, like, what would a mutant culture look like? So, the third law being make more mutants, and the widespread implication that, like, heteronormative monogamy is perhaps not the dominant norm on Krakoa uh, are kind not of the form of social reproduction and not the form of not the required <laughs> yes. form of social reproduction and the literal and figurative level social reproduction meaning not the way that people produce more people but also social reproduction as in not the way the society continues itself um, I I hope I did justice to explaining that. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, what's interesting is like um, a queer fan, like the first question that, that he had to uh, Hickman during like this Hickman interview was like, "Are is Krakoa saying that you have to go and like have heterosexual babies? And I was like, no, that's not saying that. And Hickman is like, no, that's not. Saying his that. answer was like, great. It's, it's funny to me. Like, I just, his answer was great. His answer was like, yeah, like this whole story shows you like four different ways that people are making babies. None of them are like, we're part of like man who is biologically, you know, like chromosome, blah, blah. Like none of it is a gender essentialist at all. Like it's all super science and freedom and yeah, mutants come from eggs now. Yeah, we're pod people now. <laughs> yeah, which one of the funniest? I was going to say one of the funniest questions that I saw raised recently is like, so do clone like do do resurrected mutants have belly buttons? 
Oh, I um, love that question. Because, you know, they they come from egg now. So, yeah, potentially this opens it up absolutely the reverse, that, like, any two people, or any number potentially of people, can, like, mix DNA together, inject it into an egg, and you get a, a new mutant. Um, I also just love that, like, the mutant eggs are created by Golden Balls, who is, yes. I oh, believe, balls, yeah. like, a male, a male, a male mutant. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, you're going to like go and have eggs made by like your male superhero kid. Like do that. That was That's fabulous. That was and, the most out of left field moment of the entire comic for me. And I know it was in general where they yeah. were like, oh, yeah, they've been eggs this whole time. He's just been laying eggs this whole time. Yeah, that is it's just great. Like this whole the whole system of the new five who like one of the things that I found the most emotionally compelling from the whole series was was like, I think it was Magneto was saying like, you know, mutants have been we've been had to because we've been focused on our survival, we've had to focus on physical strength and fighting as like the most prized skills. But if we're existing in a mutant society, we can just celebrate other kinds of synchronicities and other kinds of powers and because we have the freedom to not just be focused on our physical on like fighting physically right now we can use our skills creativity and then we have these five young people who use their powers together to create and rebirth new mutants in that like new mutant genesis system they've developed in an orgy and that like super spoke to me they developed them in an orgy Mm -hmm. because there's five of them yes yes and the the five person orgy for making new mutant babies well and it's such a fascinating thing because like it feeds into this other thing that the mutant metaphor has become which is about transhumanism and evolution because you know krakoa is developed you know in addition to having its own language uh which has been really fun to try to decode and having its own cultural mores it's got its own technology that's all biotechnology and we're starting to see mutants become these sort of bio machinery and bio you know computers and they're linked together in all kinds of ways so we have the five right and that's one bio machine featuring three omega mutants which as they described in the first issue are the greatest resource just going back into that bio machinery thing the greatest resource of krakoa and then we have what I call uh, um, CASA, like, you know, the Krakoan Air, uh, Aeronautics in Space, uh, whatever, um, where, like, you're linking together, you know, the, the Cuckoos and Xavier and Beast and Trinary and Storm to have, you know, trans solar system instant communication. Or you're, you know, you've got... Uh, Doug Ramsey basically doing the, not only the creation of the language, but the creation of mutant computer programming. And Forge is doing the hardware. And you've got these five different, you know, uh, Krakoan systems that run the portals and, you know, make the drugs and make the flowers. Transit, manufacturing, yeah, all that. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. one of the things that, that leads to a question is, like, are all of these groups changing the way that people see themselves and to what extent is individuality being maintained? Cause that's the big question when you get to, uh, powers of 10 and the whole X to the third universe is that it turns out to be all about these like mass, uh, machine consciousness things where you get 
devoured into the collective. But as far as we can tell, like, yes, the five developed this intense bond where they are doing everything, you know, they're always together and they're doing all kinds of stuff together. They still remain as people. Like, they, they aren't just high, you know, a hive mind. So that is another thing Good. that makes Krakoa interesting and new and changes the metaphor. I would love to hear more stories from the five also. Yes. I also would as well. I uh, am a big Elixir fan and a big uh, mm. Proteus fan. So seeing them both be, I mean, I mean, the series in general has been great for putting mutants who have been like thrown to the side because their powers weren't interesting or they haven't been featured heavily in like other media. It's been great at utilizing them and like making the, I think that's a big part of why so many fans have felt so seen in this. They're like, oh, look, there's sink and skin randomly hanging out at this party. Oh, look, Teresa Cassidy's back. Like the whole, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And especially with Proteus, what I love was the, the, the way yeah. that Krakoa changes the context. Like Proteus was introduced as like this terrifying vampiric force. But on Krakoa, he's just someone with a chronic illness. And we've invented the medication that he needs to be, you know, uh, functional and productive in his day-to-day life. That medication just happens to be, like, an endless supply of Charles Xavier's body. Yeah, why Charles Xavier? That's so weird. <laughs> he's not even an Omega. Yeah, I, I, that is the thing that probably stressed me out the most in the entire comic, aside from, like, the adamantium not being in the egg or whatever. I was like, yeah, fine, reality warping. But just an infinite amount of Charles Xavier bodies that Proteus burns out, that made me a little worried. I'm just like, oh, they can just make those. That's that's fun. All right. Um, yeah. To be fair, yeah. Charles has yeah. to die slash fake his own death a lot. Also, is he even in his own body? I thought he was... I don't know if he's <laughs> still in Phantom X. I guess we'll learn that later. But... Um, so that's... Yes. I was about to ask that. So, like... Like, we don't see his face much. He's fr- frequently wearing that egg dome. His bodily posture is, like, much more effeminate than normal. And it's just this whole, like, is this Professor X, like, vanilla flavor? Is this, like, some other permutation of it? Is he being more fabulous because he's still fan- in Fantomas's body? And I think a lot of the reasons why people don't necessarily trust that this is Charles and that he's on the up and up, other than like, I mean, Charles is often not on the up and up. and he's often <laughs> That's why I believe it is him. Is the fact yeah. that, ah, but you know, he's got his face is not, his face is partially obscured. So, you know, that's like a signal that something might not be clear to you. It's harder to read. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I saw Jordan D. White be like, uh, like, oh, there's absolutely nothing like very emphasis on that nothing like ominous about this i personally do think it's uh, xavier for the most part just because honestly yeah xavier is most of the time not on the up and up this series has openly acknowledged that and that he's an arrogant arrogant man uh and i think this is just him i don't know he was acting weird last time he was seen in the comics around when uh, he did revive and then showed up at one point in an X-Men annual to just like tell all his students they're idiots for not believing in him. Uh, yep, I remember that. Yeah, that was just, I was like, oh, okay, what a terrible dad. Um, but yeah, I think this is, sure, he has his own agenda in this and I think that uh, 
he still is a very arrogant man. But I think, um, I don't know. I, I think it's him. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's like way too much of him explaining in detail, this is why I've changed my mind. To For it not to be him, because if it's mm. not him, what is the point of, of showing us what the transformation was? Um, so I think like part of the reason why his body language is different is like he likes, you know, being able to walk and has that like level of physical freedom that means he's not so sort of straight laced all the time. It reminds me a little bit of like, you know, after, and this is probably what Hickman was drawing on, but like after Xavier got infected by the brood and got his new body back, um, thanks to the Shi'ar and he could walk again. Like, he was a little bit more, you know, loosey-goosey. There was that whole bit where, like, he got abducted by the Morlocks and they put him in bondage gear. Uh, or where he's, like, playing basketball and being kind of doofy. Um, you know, I, I think he's kind of enjoying, like, A, not being dead and, you know, having a, hu uh, you know, physical body. Um, and the fact that, like, you know, he can, he can walk around. Um... As for the helmet, um, I mean, yeah, I think it's supposed to be sort of a distancing device. Like, I think we're made to, yeah. to question. One of the things that uh, I saw that kind of made me think something different is that it's kind of the reverse of Magneto's. Mm. Like, Magneto's helmet, you know, covers certain parts of his face but leaves the eyes visible. Whereas Charles, who is now much more similar to uh, Magneto, you know, is kind of the, the obverse. Um, but yeah, that's been really interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's him. I've found it pretty interesting as well. I think the other reason a lot of people have been worried about it is just because it's very reminiscent of the maker and like, another big Hickman character that was an ominous scientist doing all these things. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. And then also, I mean, look, the first time we, one of the first times we see Xavier, he's wearing a banana Republic style, like, you know, colonialist showing up in Africa, banana Republic, like outfit. That was the same one with like the pith helmet and the like khaki mm -hmm. shirt and pants and epilepsy. It's the same outfit that Cassandra Nova was wearing when she showed up to look at that Sentinel with Bolivar Trask, you know, in New X-Men. Um, I don't associate people wearing that outfit with good people, even without Cassandra. That's like what white people do when they show up at a, in a warm country and decide that they own it. Yeah. And I think that's why like having that be when Doug talks to him about like you don't understand Krakoa as much as you think you do. Like you're you're speaking mm -hmm. in you know Pidgin and like I can actually speak the language and understand the cultural context and the deeper meaning and you know imagine if uh Krakoa had not you know sorry if Doug had not been there like right. you you can't build an alliance with Krakoa uh, on, you know, terms where you're not understanding Krakoa. 
I think it's interesting for once that like, I mean, one of Xavier's biggest flaws has always been his pride and assuming he knows best. This mm-hmm. entire series, same with Magneto, and now we see that same flaw in Moira. I think oh, yeah. that what they're all doing, uh, so much of Powers of Ten was uh, basically in the X-Zero and X-1 storylines are all about uh, Charles seeing his blind spots and what he doesn't understand and what he needs others to help him with because he doesn't fully get it. And it feels like that's been, I'm admittedly a bit of an optimist about Krakoa and like see how well it could go if they decide to keep it going well. Um, Because there is all these checks and balances among everything. And I'm excited to see more of the infrastructure with like X-Force and all that. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to see Moira like be recognized as a huge power. Like this is the first time that there's been a woman who's been positioned as being quite equal to like Charles and Magneto. I mean, Emma and Jean are both like way up there, but not as equals to them. And having Moira be like brought in as like the third great power of like mutant philosophy is like pretty significant and i'm excited that that was the one they chose to do it i just hope that when they have her own series it's written by a woman yeah and i've been excited that uh a lot of it hasn't been that a lot of people have noticed uh she's not necessarily a good character she's a complicated character like she has her own motivations she like the whole not wanting precogs in uh krakoa because she doesn't want them to see whatever is in the future or that they always lose as she says um i don't buy that they always lose thing i think yeah. it's like i don't want i don't want anyone who can see what i'm up to yeah i think she's covering her ass yeah oh yeah. so i don't think they always lose that's interesting well i mean they i i think the whole thing with um moira and it was interesting i was reading uh shelf dust did like some you know issue by issue essays I thought one of them, they got something really important completely backwards. She can't see the future. She can only see the past. Like, that's her mutant power, is that she knows her past lives. And her past so, just happens to exist several year, several thousand years into the future sometimes. Yeah, um, but it, it's like this whole thing of, like, she is assuming, I have always lost in the, we have always lost in the past. Ergo, we will always lose in the future even though by the very nature of her powers, she's always changing the future by doing things differently. And I think there is going to be like an interesting moment where it gets to this thing of like, does Moira know best? Like, or is, you know, because we see like in, in Powers of X number six, she's deeply, deeply traumatized by her past lives. And she's in a very defensive position as you might expect. Yeah. And what happens when other mutants come around who say, you know, you don't know everything. You need to let go a little bit. Let us try new things. Maybe the future will turn out differently. That's interesting. I really took We Always Lose at face value in the sense that in any struggle in which people are fighting each other over power and where nationalism is at play and therefore violence is part of it, we lose. Like, it was like, yes, that's right. 
And I just kept connecting it back to like, you know, like there you are, you've literally survived a genocide. What's the first thing you do? You should create a nation state and like start oppressing other people. Like that's, that's just where my brain keeps being on it. Like I, I was like, because they're always at war, like in none of these solutions, you know, and obviously like they're the ones who are being targeted, but like a real solution would be figuring out a way to wage peace. And that's why I'm excited about the prospect of doing these like, you know, mutant commerce and mutant, like these, these flowers and the drugs and stuff like that. But it's still one of like, it's not about, I don't know, none of this is, ultimately, I don't think any of this is a utopianism that expands beyond the narrow borders of the community that it's most concerned with. I mean, it's not supposed to be. It's very specifically supposed to be a utopia for them, given that, like, it's like, it's a gay bar where they're, like, they have control of the guest list. They can invite people in if they want but like they are all welcome there and it's a sanctuary for them it's not necessarily perfect there's been hickman specifically drops so many like different kinds of hints that some things could go wrong or he, he kept saying in that uh, adventures in poor taste interview there's a story there i see a story there i don't want to tell mm-hmm. you how this works because there's a story there and that'll be a fun story to watch and i agree with that i think that overall like they do always, her, I think Moira's We Always Lose is based in her experiences in which she's died nine times and all of them were like over a different thing related to her rights being infringed upon. I think that it's less, it isn't them being on the run, it's them being safe and having a sanctuary and like being able to flourish without running, in my opinion. I mean, I, I, I do also want to talk about it in terms of like, this is this is like an ethno state that has been created, you know, like we, we, we can see over time, you know, mutates, right? They're not they're not the same as mutants. They were mutated by like, at one, you know, I think Sinister has made mutates. The Grant, what's his name from way back in like Jack Kirby's Thor stuff. Um, the High Evolutionary? Like and has a crazy hat. Thank you. The High Evolutionary. Yeah. He makes no sense and has a crazy hat. The High Evolutionary makes mutates. Do mutates um, get to go there? Magneto like, has as made refugees? some. Ma- Magneto's made some mutates. Like, who gets to define? And obviously, Krakoa being sentient, Krakoa gets to make a decision. But we see, and I don't want to go too much into this because it's going to verge into spoilers for a comic that's also coming week. Like, what happens when Krakoa decides that a particular mutant isn't doesn't get to be there? Um, or, Yeah. I mean, already Moira's making those decisions. Like, already that's happening in the government with Moira saying Mm -hmm. no precogs, which means more than a couple mutants can't come there. Uh, And, like, I think, I don't know, I think that... Does that last? Mutates are, like, the homo novissimo are mutates, but also that's all the super... Most of the superheroes in the main Marvel universe are mutates. Hulk is a mutate, Spider-Man's a mutate, like... It's not that they are not allowed to come there. They just need permission to come there. Mm. So there's a right of return for people who are mutants based on their DNA. But based on their X gene. Right of return for people who are... Right. Right. For people, there isn't a right of return for mutates, for example. Yeah. They, they're, like, they're like vampires in old stories. They need an invitation to come in. Yeah. Although there's yeah, an interesting yeah. um, question about... Uh, 
human family members because the fact that Corsair is given a Krakoan flower mm. or the fact that um, cut this out if it's a spoiler but uh, in some uh, solicits we've seen uh, Shigo uh, living on Krakoa I don't think that's a spoiler that's fine meaning, meaning Jubilee's adopted son right. Yeah. Uh, right so yeah. you know that's an interesting thing it's like you know okay you know Krakoan immigration policy, right? Right. We we have this one general law, which seems to be the the bulk of it. But like, there are going to be some edge cases, uh, and there's a similar. Uh, you know, we might want to get into this mute. Uh, the the this question, like when Scott says to the Fantastic Four that Franklin Richards has family waiting for him on Krakoa, is that meant to be an exclusionary statement? I.e., Franklin's a mutant he can come, you're not, you can't. Or, like, would they get to come because, you know, of basically chain migration uh, through him? <laughs> you know, family reunification No, I policy. saw that, yeah, I saw that as him telling Sue Storm that the mutant, that Franklin is a mutant and mutants are his real family. And um, mm. because he was angry at Sue. And I thought that that was also the political point that he was making. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think he's inviting the Fantastic Four to come. I don't think he's inviting the Fantastic Four either, but I don't think he's saying never come to our island. I think he's saying your son is one of us. He's welcome to be with us. And like he doesn't necessarily have to invite them. He doesn't owe them an invitation. No. But but I also feel like the contact but I also feel there's a subtext of like and we will understand him the way you never can. And it's mm. sort of like, I want Franklin to say that to Frank. I want Franklin to say that to his parents. I don't know if it's Cyclops's place to say that to his parents, but it's certainly Franklin's place to say that to his parents. Do, do you know what I mean? Like I do, yeah. I think it was Cyclops just wanting to be shady. Because <laughs> he's, you know, like that. Um, so I don't know. I guess it's sort of like, I just worry with any, like, there's such a histories of separatism are always complicated and like Hmm. because somebody's making a decision of who's in and who's out and i'm happy to like say no straight people but like sometimes people might look at me and think i'm straight and i'm not like and that's what i mean right right? yeah but the x gene (laughs) like i mean you know uh, like i'm not no i'm I'm not discounting your experience at all like i totally understand that yeah i'm like that's why i always think the mutant metaphor is like really best used like loosely because <laughs> they're sometimes they're talking about humans as oh lesser beings who like are like don't be, do animal cruelty sometimes they're dating humans like it's yeah. not them dating yeah. an animal it's and, it's loose and i, I want to key in on an interesting thing that uh, just popped into my head so when in one of the many wonderful infographics they're talking about like how does this whole resurrection system work or in another one where they're talking about like all of the mutant genocides that have happened um the way that they talk about mutants who got depowered is really interesting they basically sort of say they've been made like not mutants uh but the like presumption is all of those one million people who got depowered without their consent get to become mutants again effectively by being killed and resurrected, which is 
that that's a whole nother philosophical thing. So many implications. But it is like suggesting that like even if you're a mutant who's been depowered, like you can come, we will give you your powers back. You know, you get a new mutant body, like that's part of it. And there's even some weirdness with like uh this was revealed in an interview, but, it, like, you can sort of see it on the page. Warren can shift between being, you know, white dude with feathers to blue dude with metal wings now. And that's always mm-hmm. been an interesting that's thing been about, for like... for a while. Yeah, but, but like, after, you know, his his death especially, you're just sort of seeing him bounce back and forth because, like, he was a... A mutant who had a very specific physical, um, you know, uh, nature to his powers. And then there was that whole thing with, like, okay, once he gets the metal wings, you know, is is do we see that as a prosthetic or as a part of him? And there's, like, a suggestion that's in his DNA now, too. Yeah, it's, a, it's like the death seed is a part of his DNA now. Yeah, I mean... I think there's a lot of... I think Hickman had a lot of fun writing those infographs with all the implications mm-hmm. that can exist. Like, if we're in a wartime, uh, clones can be made regardless of knowing if someone's dead, only if they've been missing for a month, which stresses yeah. me out a lot. That's a whole, that's a whole <laughs> different kind of Martin yeah. Gare. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, for a while, Angel Warren could, like... His mutation has been really weird where it, like, changes who he is because it's part of not just his mutation anymore, it's part of the death seed. And I think it's, like, I don't know. Do the... I'm jumping around a lot. Do the, uh... I always forget, do the depowered mutants still have their X gene? It just doesn't work. I always thought that they still had the X gene. I think so. So they're still, Um. like, allowed on Krakoa. They just can't... They don't have their powers. But yeah, well, and yet, yeah, I mean, it seems like there's some sort of procedure that they can, you know, because they're like, they're on the list, yeah. right? You know, they've got a list of 16 million people they're going through, um, and clearly, you know, they're they're one of those. Uh, I mean, there's a whole other interesting thing about like the what was it, the desired state that they want to come out in, right? And like all the many, many, because that was also a question they asked Hickman. Yeah, there was, like, talk about, like, augmentation and being, like, beyond being at your best, like, changing certain things. I don't know. I think there's... I don't know if you guys read uh, Uncanny, Rosenberg's Uncanny. Um, Uh, A little bit? I dropped out of it. So, sorry if this is spoilers, but uh, as it is the run right before this... It's fine. uh, Cyclops has one of his eyes shot out. Oh, yeah. Uh, A bunch of different stuff happens that hugely alters characters physicality emma gets a partial lobotomy it gets really really dark and all these characters change in major ways and so for them to have come back in the state that to be in the state they are in in house of x if this is to be believed to be the same thing it would be the same thing you're saying Stephen, about like how you have to be killed to get back to that state of self yeah and that was the Mm -hmm. like interesting question that a lot of people noticed when like the strike force gets brought back from the dead after their um, their trip to the uh, Souls Forge. The field trip, yeah. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, where, like, Cyclops, you know, even though he's in a new body, he needs the visor again. Now, is this because, you know, in, in the way that it's been done sometimes in the past that he's got a psychological block that, like, he's literally, you know, repressing uh, his ability to, like, control himself? Um, or is it that, you know, his quote-unquote desired state includes a brain injury? Right. Which, you know, has also been part of continuity. Which is also interesting that they started with, uh, they started the new X-Men uh, with, or not new X-Men, but the issue of X-Men last week with uh, Scott, like, getting to see for the first time through his Ruby Quartz glasses given to him by Xavier. Yeah, and he definitely doesn't have the, like, scars around his eye socket now. So yeah. He's got two eyeballs. He definitely has two eyeballs. Yeah, I... Which makes just, his name just, all the more ironic. It was really funny when it happened. I was like, oh, he's actually a Cyclops now. That's great. That's Love that. Yeah. Oh, man. That's that's brutal. We, we haven't had that um, since Age of Apocalypse. Yeah, there's just so many implications with this whole cloning thing and just everything he put in there that it's just, it, it's very well thought out. Well, I think that like, you know, Tar- obviously like one of the big themes about what the humans are up to always is like transhumanism and like, it's, you know, humans are willing to like integrate their bodies with machines and give up all kinds of freedom and give up all kinds of privacy, like just because of the fear of mutants and the fear of the other. And, like, somehow machines are less scary to the humans for, like, the man-machine alliance than, like, bonding with other, with, with like, mutants would be to them. Yeah, I and mean, that was... humans keep defeating themselves. Like, humans are always making, humans never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Yeah, that was, that was, like, it was a funny moment, but it's also, like, if you think about it, from... X-Men number one, where, like, that guy decides, like, no, we're going to turn everyone into giant gorillas rather than, like, just lay down Mm -hmm. our guns. Rather than accept evolution as being real and happening. Yeah, like, all these supposed, you know, scientists and, like, it really is interesting. None of them ever thought, like, hey, CRISPR exists. (laughs) Like, why not just turn on, turn on, you know, why not just turn on the X gene? Of everybody. Like, why is it that the, the default is always, like, we've cured mutancy? You know, why why do we go to the, the, the lower baseline? Yeah, I, I think the Orkies are... Is, is that... What, I'm, I'm like, Orkies, yeah. Or- yeah Orcus, I think... I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think they're Orcus, an... Inf- yeah. I think they're an interesting villain. I don't know if uh, Killian Devo has showed up before X-Men <laughs> 1... There's some question about so. whether he's the other Devo, uh, who was like a Shi'ar Death Squad leader, who like helped to kill oh, Jean's I... family. Oh, who had a oh. similar design? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's he was clearly, actually just in Devo. He was in the band. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Um. But how... you know the whole like, are we not men? We are Devo. Like being from one of the Devo songs. <laughs> Also, yeah. Devo referring to the other people as spuds perpetually in their lyrics. <laughs> how did y'all? How did you both feel about uh, the new, the newest uh, issue, X Men? 
I, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, I've got no idea what the pink crystal is about. Emcron, um, maybe? Uh, yeah. Or, or Nimrod or, or, you know, something sinister related. Could could be many things. But I did think it was interesting. Like, you know, we, we've seen, especially in House of X number three and four, right? There's this whole logic of, um, like, ratcheting retaliation. You know, if if we were going to tell, you know, remember how we were talking earlier about like, oh, the the metaphor can be so shifty. Like any potential ethnic conflict, you can layer in on this, where like retaliation becomes justification for you know even more retaliation down the line. And you can definitely see that like Orcus have created this narrative where like ignore the fact that we were building, you know infinitely replicating genocide robots in space because we have this crazy eugenic theory of demographic replacement, which I don't know if we want to talk about that, but like, oh no, they yeah. they were the bad guys for coming here and killing people and then we killed them all, but it's still their fault. I mean, what's best, what I love most about uh, House of X3 is how Hickman in the story frames them in like, traditional heroic tropes like oh i really wish we had kids together and like they so many times it's been the mutants are the one who like the humans are one step ahead of them where this is the one time the shoe is on the other foot i was like the shoe is turned no the shoe is on the other foot and Mm -hmm. uh the mutants get the drop on the humans and they're unprepared and it's like an underdog situation and there's, like, a bold, noble sacrifice. But it's really, no, you guys are, like, genocidal. This isn't noble. You're just, like, it's just all about the perspective of it. And I thought it was, like, really interesting that Hickman decided to frame it that way. Yeah, no, I love that he's, like, let me tell you about, like, their broken love of Gregor and Mental. And it's, like, yeah, these monsters who are working with the white supremacists of um, Hydra are uh, also people, you know, they like to think they're people just like you and me. <laughs> um, and like, sort of like trying to be like, hey, these people, like they're definitely the hero of their own story. They just happen to be really super wrong. Um, you know, they're obviously like, if you're working with Hydra, then you know you're on the wrong side. It's a pretty yeah, pretty straightforward indication. And, and it also leads um, into the whole uh, transhumanism thing with the man-machine supremacy, because... They're like in their drive to, you know, don't let them win, right? Being the thing that they default to, you know, all other criteria go out the window. They're like switching on sociopathic AIs who are saying literally mm-hmm. like, we are going to steal the fires from heaven and use them to burn humanity. You know, like the the homo, homo novissimo, like that's one possibility Another possibility in another timeline is Nimrod rules the galaxy and, you know, humans are this, you know, Stockholm syndrome, you know, subordinate. Rather serve in heaven than reign in hell, is I think what the leader of the Church of Humanity thing says. Or not the Church of Humanity, but Church of whatever they're called now. so it's like you'd rather be enslaved to to a robot with a sense of with a really bizarre and irritating sense of humor 
than like collaborate <laughs> I, with mutants. I think Nimrod is actually so hilarious. I do love Nimrod, even if he's uh, horrible. Yeah, that was that was such a good bit of character design where they made him like evil um uh Baymax. <laughs> yeah, with the like, emoji faces mm, and everything. Yeah, just like make him slightly, you know, chunky and like round and all of a sudden he seems so much less threatening even when like he is casually you know murdering humans and talking about like well can't we just genocide them to make things more efficient and by the them he means humans not mutants that's a whole nother thing like he has his weird collector's you know case uh, for the mutants but like humans just need to go because they're they're you know they're inefficient See, I think, I've seen a lot of people talk about, like, are you more of a hoxer or a poxer? Uh, which series did you prefer? Mm-hmm. And, like, I think I'm, like, with a lot of people in that I preferred House of X because it was just, all, this, all the timelines work for me. Uh, or, like, all the, the storyline is just very strong and I, like, like it as a whole book. Whereas, like, each issue of uh, Powers of Ten just felt kind of like sketches sometimes, like skits, and like some would like always hit, but some would miss. But I think where like the real strength of Powers of X or Powers of Ten is is the implications it raises that don't show up if you don't read it. If you just read, like you will get a full story if you just read uh, House of X, but. Powers of Ten serves as an infographic on its own in that it draws parallels between the humans and the mutants. It, like That's where all the big meat about machines really comes in, is in Powers of Ten, because it's all yeah. that future stuff. But like the, the resurrection ceremony, for instance, feels... People have described it as feeling kind of culty and like talking about making more mutants similarly in the like second of the i think powers of 10 3 where there's the big battle in the x2 timeline there's culty behavior yeah they burn a baby's face off yeah and turning it into like talking about making more machines so i think i mean there's just all these parallels being drawn actually instead of between the humans and the mutants between the mutants and the machines and their cultures and like all the infographics about uh, group minds and dominions and all that being actually formed mm-hmm. in Krakoa in like uh, the five, for instance, uh, the resurrection yeah. machine five. And like, see, I don't know if they're parallel so much as contrast, because the thing that really annoyed me about like people were saying that it was culty was that they were saying the, like the loving resurrection ceremony where like, it's done like something out of a renaissance painting with like these shafts of light and like everything mm. is perfect and edenic is the cult but not the bit where someone burns a baby's face off like no one of these <laughs> is is basic ritual you know well and in that timeline that is the ordained religion like yeah, the widespread no, no, no. religion whereas this is the mutants on their island doing their weird thing that scares all the humans, which yeah. is just an orgy. They're all naked. Yeah. Like, <laughs> let's but touch our like, naked, slimy friends. But, you know, the, the but thing I think is, that's it's just loving. It, right? It's like you're, you're 
Right, exactly. And, you know, so it's, people, it's... People should not be freaked out about that. Yeah. Like the mutant resurrection ceremony. Like, you, well, I mean, Stephen, you had, like, a really great take on it. But, like... Yeah, it's, it's call about, and response. Like, role. It's, it's any mm-hmm. religious ceremony. Like, I, I dare you to go into, you know, an Abyssinian Baptist church at Easter. Or, like, go into a synagogue on Yom Kippur and tell them they're a cult and see how well it does <laughs> for you. Uh, you know, yeah. because... What what the what the content of the ritual is about, and the content matters, is in the mutant case. This is saying, are these the people that we know and recognize? Yes, they are. We we are joining them and loving them, and it's all about like power is shared, authority is coming from mm-hmm. multiple figures. You know, Storm is is kind of leading the ceremony, but you need the like the the audience of mutants to say yes. We yeah. we we legitimize this, but you also need the response from the individual. Whereas the machine church is like one dude saying, bow down, feel bad. Right. Let me indoctrinate you into becoming a slave of a machine that like despises you. Yeah. In one situation, it's recognizing identity within a community. Whereas the other is Mm -hmm. you are literally being a sim assimilated into this greater whole and that happens more than once also with the x3 uh, timeline where it's the phalanx where it's like you need to like the only way you can really live on is through this larger thing that you need to assimilate it into you can't well, be yourself in it it's even worse because the 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 quote from the the minister is you will never fully assimilate you will live in this horrible middle place where, like, you know that you're flawed and you're never going to be like a mutant. Uh, sorry, like a machine. But you're never like going to be mutant. perfect like them. And it's like, oh my god, that's so much worse than the phalanx. Because at least the phalanx, mm-hmm. like, recognize that, you know, you are, quote-unquote, worthy of assimilation. They just can't download you. They just have to download a copy of you. Yeah, this is like saying, you know, <laughs> you, you are not worthy of assimilation. You're just going to mutilate yourself in imitation. Now, the resurrection scene gives the opportunity to talk about the art again a little bit, which is like, I think that, you know, all the re- all the visual references that the series has made to Renaissance painting, like, for example, um, you know, we have lots of God creating man imagery, very mm-hmm. Sistine Chapel, um, and all these things are directed really beautifully. Um, and I think that it does those things really well. But when I look at the characters and I look at, for example, like the resurrected Jean Grey, I don't know, dude, she looks like she's 20, maybe at most, possibly a late teenager. I look at Cyclops, he looks like a grown up. Um, I, you know, the aging of the characters, normally I'd be like, oh, well, this is just an art style, you know, like I, some people are like, oh, well, maybe they're supposed to be different points in their life. I'm like, no, I think this is just an art style problem for all of the artists working on this. Um, I think maybe think that like the best look for men is in their thirties and the best look for women is in their twenties. Um, I, I think that there's, I think that that's really stupid <laughs> and very common. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. I mean, also just the fact that she's Marvel girl, still because Mm -hmm. that like the again the portrayal of gene in this comic has been talked about by a bunch of people as like not being the best i mean she's like helpless during the mission when she is has been like even without phoenix has been a super 
powerful. She's an Omega level, like, mm-hmm. and like is the most helpless on that mission. Uh, your yeah. point about how she looks. I also think it's interesting that, uh, I mean, Jordan Dwight has said, uh, second time just talking about the editors and meta stuff, but he's like, he always permanently sees uh, Cyclops as being like 25, whereas Hickman sees him as being like mm-hmm. in his mid to late 30s. Oh, was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And acts like he had. Cyclops yeah. acts like he's in his mid to late. He just is. Yeah, but I think he was like in his mid to late 30s when he was 15. <laughs> yeah, that is true too. But physically, like he just is. He's older, you know. Um, so, I mean, it helps that he's like definitely... super jacked. <laughs> like, Lots of that men makes... are at all different ages, you know. Well, I'm just saying it ages. makes it it makes him look slightly older. That like if we saw, you know, O five Scott, right? You know, who really did mm-hmm. earn the nickname Slim, like, and you put him next to Jean Grey, you wouldn't necessarily say like, oh, one of these is older than the other uh but like there's something about like scott being super jacked and gene not uh but i agree i i yeah, don't I, think gene yeah. gray has been written nearly as well as other female voices in Hawksbox. like moira is way better emma is way better I mean, they did, they did, they did the justice of giving her a particularly iconic hat and earrings in that, which the hat is referencing other Moira. Moira is a woman who has worn berets before, and they were right to choose to give her a beret in that so we could keep track of the fact that it was always her and that really just impressive issue of like, I think it was House of X2. Yeah, Mod Moira. Um, um. So the thing is that like, Moira also looks like she's about 20. And I just think this is another case of, art like basically of sexism and art getting in the way of storytelling like we shouldn't be sitting here guessing over how old people are supposed to be based on the drawings yeah that artists should be able to draw women looking the age they are and like have us not just try to guess it out so you know like i think the art has been strong in some ways and not in others the color work has been great and also consistent and i'm glad that they've had the same colorist working across the different books the same color team i should say because that's been part of the reason why it's had cohesive it looked really consistent on that end, yeah. I have been a big fan of, like, in general, like, I very much agree with your criticism on, uh, like, the aging, which is just a typical... One of my biggest issues in comics is when She-Hulk is, uh, on a similar note, drawn as, like, just kind of looking like a bodybuilder rather mm-hmm. than an actual Hulk, mm-hmm. which is why I've liked the later run of the Avengers for that part, uh, in which she is an actual Hulk. Um, but, um, yeah, that sexism issue is like of how people are drawn in comics is consistently frustrating sometimes. Uh, but overall I did really enjoy the work of the art teams on this. I think having two artists, uh, with similar styles, like coming from the same school, I think, uh, Oliver Saba at, uh, AV Club set made a tweet about how both of them are definitely from the school of like Stuart Imonen and their styles, like mm. going in differing directions. Uh, and I really liked that. I think uh, Laraza was, was the best one for like the Renaissance style of so many scenes in House of X, whereas like Silva's more straightforward style really worked for Powers of Ten, but like was inconsistent sometimes. Mm. And then in um, 
uh, House of X number one, like one of the things that I really noticed is just like, wow, a, a different artist makes a huge difference with like how we interpret expression, and like mm-hmm. the way that you can draw eyes differently to either get a huge amount of information or not. Um, really stood out to me. It's just kind of like, oh, I I suddenly. I'm not quite sure what, you know, say Scott is, is feeling or, um, you know, what Jean is feeling, even if she's being drawn to be way too young, like, you know, the difference (laughs) between like, oh, there's this, this artist, you know, has drawn tears in their eyes. So I know what they're feeling. And this one, it's just like, it's, it's, it's a face. I don't know what the face feels. Yeah. I think, uh, one of Mm. Silva's best moments in powers of 10 comes at the very end, that scene of, uh, right after that beginning scene where they're at the fair and it's the Moira X timeline and Xavier sees everything that Moira showed him and like over five panels you see Xavier's expression oh, yeah, change screaming. to one of absolute terror and pain. Uh, I thought that was so beautifully done. I think that was like one of the high it points was great. artistically yeah. of the series. Doing it with so great. much with so little. Um. So let's talk about graphic design and charts. Um, Ooh, they have yes. had infographics being made on the being made on the regular by um, Tom Muller, graphic designer. Stick to thing that Heckman has used before. Um, and yep. you know they've definitely been able to use those graphics as part of the st- storytelling. And of course, in the most recent issue of X Men, X Men number one, like just really released one of the biggest pieces of <laughs> like big X-Men news in a graph before. Uh, so wh- what did you guys think of the using the infographics in the series? How, how did they work for you? What are your favorites? What did you think of the device? See, I'm like, I'm big on, uh, I'm someone who will regularly read a fan wiki. So something like this is really enjoyable to me. Uh, it's like getting all this information that like, if you took the infographics out of these comics, they would not function as well. You would not understand what is going on without long, long speech mm-hmm. bubbles. Uh, I think that they were really brilliant for getting information across. I'm curious to, if to casual readers, if it will make it more accessible or less accessible. If they just don't feel like reading something that doesn't come with like the pretty pictures. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to highlight a... Uh, oh, yes. So, Strip Panel Naked on YouTube did a great video. It's like uh, less than seven minutes long called Crafting a Documentary Comic uh, about the infographics. And one of the things that they point to is like there's an interesting thing that they do with them being diegetic or not diegetic. Like, some of them are coming from cl- clearly different perspectives. Like, Moira's journal is different from whoever is writing the, like, the main ones versus, like, the bar sinister blind items. Those are just very different voices. But Mm -hmm. they also point to the way that they're used to break up sequences. So that sometimes you'll have a sequence about something, and then you'll get a infographic that, like, wraps it up. And then you, you change sections. Or sometimes it goes the other way where an infographic starts a section. Uh, but it, it does really fascinating stuff with tempo. And it's also, I think, a great way to like bring in information that could potentially be 
not everyone's cup of tea. Like, it, it avoids people sitting around and talking all the time, but is really important. Like, you know, the uh, most sexually charged architectural diagram in comic books. Truly, madly, like, deeply. That's a whole thing where you have to, like, look at the diagram, look at the caption, recognize what the difference between a wall, a door, and an open passageway looks like on that diagram, and, you know, out pops a, a thruple, you know. So let's explain this to people. Okay, sure. so if people haven't seen it, in X-Men number one, there is a floor plan of, um, like, with Cyclops, like the Summers family. The Summer House. house on Walmart. the moon. The Summer House on the moon and what it looks like. Um and uh, so you see, like, where different rooms are and stuff like that. And there's three bedrooms. You see that there's a the floor chart shows different rooms for different people. There's three rooms that are in a row. Um, one of them is marked for Logan, one for Jean, and one for Cyclops. And the, there are doors connecting the rooms in between them. Additionally, each room is numbered and assigned to a different person. The numbers on the key, the infographic key, are not in numerical order properly in the case of John Jean, Scott, and Logan. Um, Jean's room is between the two of their rooms as labeled in the chart, but her number isn't sequential. So it pretty clearly looks to me like actually Jean's room isn't supposed to be in the center. Logan's is. Um, and at the last minute editorial had a gay panic and decided that Jean's room was in the middle, but they didn't renumber it. At least that's how I read that aspect of the diagram. That's um, a, a possibility. Um, I did want to say one thing though they're not actually connecting doors we know what doors look like in the diagram they're open passageways oh man and that <laughs> really changes that things because that's like it's not just an open marriage you know or it's uh you know uh, a v-shaped uh right. poly relationship a- like they're very comfortable with listening you know at the very least listening to one another fucking you know that that's like zero privacy like you're gonna hear everything you'd better hope that wolverine doesn't snore because he just looks like a guy who <laughs> he just looks you like he he's he's, he's I, I, I bet he has night terrors i think he has night terrors and <laughs> snores um, sure, we all probably. have night terrors yeah they, they, i think every mutant does have night terrors fun fact <laughs> but yeah i mean god only knows what they're doing about the cigars Okay, so it's not even interfacing doors. It's there are no doors. That's pretty mind-blowing. Yeah. Do you think I'm right, though, about the way the reason the numbering is off? I don't know. Like, if... why else would the numbering be off? I think they, uh, wouldn't, I... they don't want it to. Uh, I mean, they could have put the numbering in a different order and still had it be out of order to be like, oh, this is, like, I don't know if it was much as much. Uh, I think there was, pa- like, not panic, but, like, yeah, we don't want Scott and... Logan's room next to each other because editorial probably doesn't want them to be outright like they want uh, Gene to be the connecting bond but like there's been so much like I can't decide if it's queer baiting or if it's like actually I want it to be realistic and like actually be Scott and Logan love each other because of course they do. I, I was gonna say in the in the big yeah. like Return of the Jedi celebration panel right Logan is the one in the middle and like getting the <laughs> getting the tummy rubs from Scott. Unlike you know. the rooms, Logan is the one in the middle this time. See, I, I really think that Hickman is trying his darndest 
and that Logan is the middle room in the chart from the numbering pattern and editorial had a last minute freak out. And so they're like, yeah, 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 we'll change the labeling. But then they didn't change the numbering because he still wants us to know the truth. But speaking of the poly thing, uh, my headcanon is that like Emma is definitely part of this. She just refuses to share a room with Logan. Well, she also has her own pl- She has her red key, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think she loves having uh, the White Palace. Yeah, uh, there we I go. Think she, I think she loves having her own space. That's a that's an important thing for her. But I think it's also like, you know, if they were like, you know, hey, come on come on up to the house. She's like, you know, look, I'm, I'm happy to do whatever, wherever, but like not in the room that Logan smokes cigars in constantly. That's not happening. <laughs> Yeah, I also liked, I, there was, like, a lot of talk about, like, the family aspect of it and, like, how there's, like, nine bedrooms in the house with, like, one for Alex, one for uh, Kid Cable, one for Rachel, who's prestige now, uh, and one for Vulcan, who is my new favorite character. Oh, yes, uh, Vulcan the himbo. Yeah, Vulcan the himbo. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, he's still evil because of what he did to Logan's steak. Um, but anyway, steak. I agree, Chingy. You it was really upsetting. I was like, like do not yeah. make his steak well done. Um, anyway, but uh, yeah, the empty rooms, like it brings to mind sleepovers, and like that's where they can go when uh, Scott, Jean, and Emma want to have some time together away from Logan's cigars and. I don't think he eats ribs in bed, but like in his room, <laughs> are def- there's definitely like no, I- he has like a, tr- a he has like how some people have a wine cooler. He definitely has a barbecue sauce fridge. Like yeah. that's just a thing <laughs> Logan has that you need to accept. Oh my god! Yeah. So actually, here's a serious question. Here's a serious question. One of the things that people who are no fun have been complaining on the internet is that they think that. All of the X-Men conversation online has just been people being thirsty and people being horny. And like, why is everybody talking about sex? Why is everybody talking about, you know, mutant orgies, da, 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 da. And like, they view it as being outside of the story in some way. And I think it's pretty clearly not outside of the story. I think it's pretty clearly inside of the story. Oh, it's implicit. And part of the re-envisioning of like mutant society is to like not have like oppressive, puritanical... Um, yeah, you got to bone. It's the law. It's, it, and it's the law, yes. Nightcrawler said it's law, so it's law. I mean, like, yeah, no, the horniness of the series is in the series. It's not like when the when Batman Damned came out, everybody was being horny about it online because, oh, look, Batman's dick is in a comic. With this, it's like, but it wasn't a sexual situation. With this, it's implicitly, no. we need to make more mutants. You're seeing all these characters who have had, like, these complicated, like, love squares, love rectangles, like, interacting in, like, affectionate ways. You're getting outright, like, basic, like, in the uh, Sinister Secrets, there's one all about the, th- the quadruple and, like, being like, what if they just stopped you know, arguing and actually just all got got along together. Uh, like, there's all these implicit references to sexuality and, like, different ways of loving and, like, community there. Like, it's a... It's... Pre- yeah, it's pretty implicitly horny. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, one of the people being thirsty on the web is Jonathan Hickman. Like, 
he's the guy who wrote the tweet saying a group of mutants is called an orgy and like showing the photo that or uh, uh, a picture that someone had drawn with like Emma Frost with a sign saying I fuck redheads. Like, oh, I didn't see that one. I love that. Yeah, but like you know, I didn't and see and that. Jean, Jean and Emma that. also share a beer. Like yes. they're you know. So there happy. is a very horny so community happy. that includes the creative team as well as all the fans. So, you know, and hey, it's not like that hasn't been a part of like X-Men fandom since Claremont either. Yeah, I'm like really interested and hoping to see a lot like I'm like not getting my hopes too high, but I really am like hoping to see more like implicit queerness in this comics these comics again with everything Hickman's done so far and having a creative team with like three different like out queer creators um and just like I think my big hope really is uh I'm really happy that uh Magic Ileana is like a captain in the now uh Krakoan military I really hope she is made canonically queer because I think it's been a big thing in fan communities that she is she's just gay it's just yeah. magic is gay that reminds me i have a question to ask when we stop recording oh okay i love that uh, and speaking <laughs> of which though like i mean but me- meanwhile like i still uh, you know you know we have emma flirting with with kitty and it's i'm sorry with kate and it's a beautiful thing um in the future yeah, issue i guess i'm not out, going but, like, to ask. i think <laughs> oh yeah she's doing that but like, I still think that the creators are not going to. No, none of them. None of these. No straight white man is going to ever let Kitty be by, despite what Christopher Claremont intended, because they continue to treat her as their like fictional girlfriend from childhood, who they can't fathom that that girl would be by, even though there's a, probably a decent chance that she is too. Um, so I don't have high hopes for that, despite like that becoming canonical. Like I think even. The, I think the writers even are intending it, but I don't think that the the hires up will let it happen, which is ridiculous. Because if there's anybody who we know was intended to be bisexual, it's Kitty. Seriously, Chris Claremont himself said at FlameCon that he'd always intended for Kitty to uh, end up with Rachel Summers in the end of the day. Yeah, and I mean, spaketh Claremont. We're also seeing like, I mean, Mystique is a character who has also had like a notoriously complicated relationship with sexuality in the comic books where like mm-hmm. nightcrawler was supposed to be the child of her and destiny but they had to change it and they're like all right let's make uh azrael let's this is this is his dad now this weird demon mutant and also there are angel mutants and that was a whole mess but um oh my god and i also liked that well uh, they had destiny and mystique kiss on panel finally recently yeah, for the first time this goddamn year yeah i think uh but i mean there's another like Im- like implicitly queer character who has been treated as not queer, even though it's been like cr- like word of God and creator's intentions, but editorial has gotten in the way of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they're actually going to like do something. And that is who? Uh, wait, what was that? Sorry, who was the character who's word of God queer, but people haven't let them do it? Oh, I mean Mystique until recently. Right. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. Mystique. Mystique yeah, Mystique yeah. and like her wife, Destiny, her ancient Destiny. wife. Yeah. Irene Adler. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm. I'm. 
I'm admittedly very hopeful about Dawn of X, uh, this new Dawn, but I also am like prepared for editorial I mean, to they, get in the way or someone to mess something up. They certainly have made it a thing that like Mystique's ask was like, you're bringing back Destiny or I'm not helping. Um, so, you know, it the, the gun is on the mantle. Chekhov's, Chekhov's yeah. lesbian couple, yeah. They're, we're just all Chekhov's queers. It's mutants. They're all Chekhov's queers. Truly. Yeah. I mean, they're going to try, and hopefully with Hickman in a leadership role, because he's a white man, maybe editorial will listen to him and we'll get to have more gay things. Yeah. And maybe um, it'll be a little bit more elegant than the uh, Iceman situation. Which was, oh, don't even just, it makes me <laughs> so angry. It makes me so angry. To be fair, um, that's how I feel about New Tien, uh, that secret empire. Uh, mutant nation i don't acknowledge it exi- its existence yeah there's a there's a whole event that needs to be dropped down the memory hole yeah like i have an essay about bisexual erasure i'd like everyone to read i'm sure you all know anyway um so let's sort of wrap this i've got a, a one of my so there's a question we got from a listener um basically saying um Marvel is scared of politics right now. Like when Mar- Art Spiegelman mentioned Trump in uh, an essay about, you know, Marvel like anniversary, like they wouldn't freaking run it. Like they're scared about talking about politics. And yet House of, you know, Hoxpox is super political. Is Marvel just okay with this because it's largely metaphorical? And, you know, my answer to the listener is yes. That is why Marvel's okay with it. They're okay with it because it is metaphorical. Um, like that's just pretty straightforward, clear to me. I think they're comfortable um, with it in small doses, reader... but this is definitely a big dose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but because it's a metaphor, he can do it because it's right. not, he's not actually writing about Israel-Palestine and he's not actually writing about real world white supremacists like the president, etc. Yeah, I um, mean, my hope is that like with, you know, certain um, structural changes at Disney Marvel that, you know, if they continue the process of like chiseling out Ike Perlmutter... Um, you know, <laughs> that hopefully we can get some better representation. Um, you know, maybe even in uh MCU movies. Like we'll we'll see how yeah. far we can get Disney yeah. Disney to budge on this, but it's gotta be better than Pearl, Pearl Mutter. Um somebody else asked, where are the Illuminati? Like where do we think they've been? Are they aware of this? Do they care? Ooh, the Illuminati meaning yeah. Doctor Strange, Professor X, I'm sorry, uh, what's his fuck? Doctor Strange, Reed Mr. Richards. Fantastic. Mr. Tony Fe- Stark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Doctor Doom, Tony Stark. Uh, no. Namor, Black Panther. Name- oh yeah, the Namor scene was interesting. I totally oh, yeah. felt like that was the most in-character writing of Namor in a long time. N- Namor is, um, yeah. But yeah, so... The- so like yeah, the, the what, what Marvel has named as the Illuminati, who are like leaders amongst different species of the Marvel universe. What do they make of all of this? Have they? Why haven't they been mentioned yet? I mean, I obviously think it's stories to come, but like, what do you think they're thinking about it? I mean, I I feel like the Illuminati haven't been mentioned in um in like a little bit of a minute now. Um, they seem to like after the Secret War, after time runs out. What's it called? Uh, yeah, after Secret Wars, it just seemed to dissolve and not really be mentioned again. Um, uh, I don't know. I So many of them were, like, either dead 
or lost in space for a while. Or not uh, speaking mm-hmm. to each other. Yeah, I, I don't consider them to be like active players in the game right now. And like even if they were, I just feel like them not being mentioned is because this was supposed to be very X-focused. Uh, not like Captain America showing up to be a jerk in the comic uh, randomly. Oh, please don't start. I, <laughs> I hate the way that like people who haven't read classic Captain America will write him in Captain a, America. We'll write him in an X Men comic. Yeah, because like yes, yeah. I know exactly what Captain America would do if like the American state started oppressing mutants. It's called he leads the mutants to war against the American state and overthrows the government. Yeah, uh, and like another one of I think one of the most interesting uh, like single issues I read recently was. A Captain America, like, a couple issues ago, where uh, uh, Steve was actually, like, he's no longer Captain America right now, he's just Steve, and he's at the border, like, helping, uh, like, undocumented people, like, cross over and be safe from white supremacists. So I feel like the times they are comfortable, like, bringing up uh, politics, it's, like, very blatantly, like, yes, murdering undocumented people is wrong. Like, just, like biggest on-the-nose white supremacy. Um, But in the, like, larger question, the Illuminati, yeah, I don't see them as still being, like, major players. Uh, It is going to be interesting seeing how the rest of the world uh, with these comic characters does interact with uh, the mutants uh, and Krakoa. Uh, right now, I'm enjoying the little sandbox there and by themselves, but it'll be it'll be something. Yeah, that that's going to be interesting because it's you know Storm has played a really big role in a recent you know Coats run. Like she's actively mm-hmm. worshipped as a goddess yeah. in Krakoa. That's that's a whole nother thing, you know. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that too. I mean, I'm not surprised that Doctor Doom like has doesn't want to let you know mutant drugs into yeah you know Latveria, but he you know generally I don't think he'd he'd let like outside broadcast television in. So yeah, he's, yeah. he's got his whole like you know mm-hmm. no only I you know only my science. Um, Victor's complicated. Yeah, but. Uh, Oh, another thing that's going to be really interesting, like, the Inhumans. You know, Scott has put his house on their front doorstep. Who? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but my, my favorite, my favorite joke... Like, how, yeah. My favorite joke is basically like, okay, so, you know, Scott moves next door and now he's part of, like, a, a poly couple, or threple, pod, whatever. Uh, like, is he just, the, like the swinger neighbors who, like, they hide from and they don't answer the door when he rings the doorbell. I like that idea. That's amazing. Medusa's Probably. like, Black Agar, also- we have to answer the door at some point, and he's, he doesn't say anything. Black Agar says nothing, as for usual. Yeah. Aw. Actually, one other thing, this I was talking with, oh, golly, I forgot who would point it out. Does Jean really want to leave on the moon? Live on the moon? Because like the moon is not Jean's happy place. It's a charged yeah, place. Yeah, this Jean is where there. she died. Um, so like, is, what is it? Does she not know that in this timeline? I'll admit, I picture it as like that episode of The Office where like Jim shows 
Pam the house he bought that was his childhood home, except it's this, like, instead of that, Scott's like, Gene, do you love what I bought, where I set us a house? It's just like, oh, the site of many of my greatest traumas, yes. Thanks, honey, it's great. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of weird, yeah. though, that, like, with the portals, I wonder if it feels like living on the moon, if you can, like, walk through a door and all of a sudden you're on Krakoa? Like, the 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 spatial reference, I think, are going to get very complicated. Yeah, I hope... I Yeah, they are... But, yeah, they are neighbors now with the Inhumans and uh, weird, chained-up Nick Fury. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Unseen. Uh, but, yeah, I... I could see, like... I don't know, it's the same way with uh, Moira, where she's just like, one of the entrances to my place is... Uh, into Krakoa. The other is like the most beautiful culinary like city in the world, uh, which I really want to see what that is. But like with the I'm portal, you can... New Orleans, no? I, I hope so. I would hope so. <laughs> uh, but with that portal, with the portals, like you really can go to any habitat anywhere. So I don't know. If it's just like, oh, look, we have a view, but this is where they sleep. And this is also where Jean had some not so fun moments. And it definitely is the gene who remembers that stuff because she makes a reference to Inferno. Yeah. So, like, she's, you know, that that's the funny thing is, like, yes, she's wearing this earlier costume. Uh, she doesn't seem as powerful, but she clearly has these memories. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited to see... Uh, I'm, in general, not super loving how Hickman is handling Gene, as many people are feeling. And I'm excited to see, uh, I think it's Ben Percy doing, because uh, she's going to be a big part of X-Force, I believe. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. I'm excited to see like her in how like that'll be handled. Uh, that's shaping up to be an interesting team. Well, I've liked Storm. I mean, there wasn't enough Storm in Hoxpox, but what Storm there was was quite good. And then... I have read Marauders. Um, Marauders is great, folks. I'm really excited for you to get to check it out. Storm is great there. Um, the color artist on Marauders drew her looking white, practically, with the coloring on her skin. And her skin is far too light in too many of these comics in general, even though like she's drawn looking black, but her skin is just very fair. Um, so I want to flag that. But characterization-wise, I think they've done good work with Storm. Yeah, I I think that there ha yeah. it's not that there like haven't been any strong uh like women character moments, like strong characterization of like female characters in Hawkspox. I think there have been. I just think Jean hasn't seen it. Yeah, like yeah, she it's hasn't. pretty clear Hickman gets Emma way and like her voice way more than he does Jean. Yeah, I think he said that Emma is definitely one of his favorite characters and He's been using her, like, I think, like, aside from the, like, main triumvirate of, like, uh, Moira, uh, Moira, uh, Magneto, and Professor X, like, she has been featured pretty heavily. And she's been great, but, like, I don't understand why they decided she was no longer going to be the Black King and acted like it never happened, and then she was always the White Queen. I love that they have Emma Frost, you know, running the above-the-board business machinations. That's, like, a great use of Emma Frost. 
But the fact that he felt like he needed to bring Sebastian Shaw to run the black market side of the business, Sebastian Shaw, who raped Emma Frost and is just completely evil, I think is an insult to her and to mutants who could be running the black ops who aren't rapists of Emma Frost. I think that like in story, like that insult is like fully seen by Emma and like acknowledged as being like, really? I just got rid of him. Like, uh, I, I like that the, the biggest, my favorite thing about this series is that Charles and Magneto and Moira, none of them are painted as being like right all the time. No Mm -hmm. one is objectively correct and making the decisions that are like their decisions are like objectively the best for everyone they're just making the decisions they think matter and like coming with all these compromises and uncomfortable uh interactions um i think that's like what i've really appreciated about it that it's not painted as black and white like oh you do need him like no she doesn't need him and it's demeaning that xavier and magneto think that she does need him but mm-hmm. like they could have had someone else who is also like a dark figure run that who didn't abuse Emma Frost, but uh, the, the uh, thieves skilled folks are right there, you know. <laughs> Just yeah. have Remy call maybe them. not Remy it's himself, easy. not Remy himself, he doesn't quite have his shit together, but you know, yeah. I was gonna say, I would, uh, you know, the the thieves skilled can do some great work. I'm not sure that Remy could organize a ham sandwich, <laughs> uh, no. So I I have my own theory about Sebastian Shaw, and I'll be very interested to see if this plays out, which is, I think he's there as a patsy. Yeah, I can see that. That if they get caught, they can be like, oh no, this guy that we all think sucks, you know, we had no idea that he was doing this thing that we totally knew about the whole time. Um, okay, Uh, Mutant Justice, he's in the oubliette now, like, you know, Sabretooth moved, you know, a little bit over that way. Yeah, I think it's, like, the similar thing with, uh, like, I mean, they they acknowledge it in the book, where they're like, yeah, we want you to be the face of this, and, like, he's going to run, like, we can't have you dirty your hands with this, because, like, we need you to be, like, our legitimate business front. Yeah, a le- legitimate business. Yeah, like in a uh, very godfathery tone. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting that, like, Emma's counterplay is to recruit Kitty. Yeah, I love it. You yeah. know, because... I love and I love it. <laughs> you know, you, you can say a lot of things, but, like, no, Kitty Pride is not going to listen to a word that Sebastian Shaw says. Yeah. Like, she's probably going to punch him in the face a whole lot, I hope. And, like... Yeah, I do really like that, like, Emma comes out on top, which is her truly, the co- the position she's most comfortable <laughs> in. Uh, sorry, I had to make a joke about how mm-hmm. Emma Frost is a top because it's just a true statement. Um, it's a true statement. Yeah, no, her and Jean are top for top. It's the only top for true top for top relationship. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like that uh, Emma has really gotten the benefits of all this situation where it's like, Sebastian just gets to come back for now. And, like, his suggestions at the table on the Quiet Council aren't even considered. They're like, no, we don't get to, like, deforest Krakoa. That's not how it works. Sit down. You're just here to fill a seat. Yeah. Whereas, like, 
Emma is getting a 50 year like exclusive trade deal mm-hmm. if Krakoa lasts 50 years <laughs> knock on wood totally well I think that's a great last word on it is there anything else that folks want to hit up before we go nope I'm good no I'm good well, let our listeners know where they can find more of your illustrious work, Chingy. Uh, I can be found on, on Twitter such. and Instagram as the Gay Chingy. The Gay Chingy, C H I N G Y. I love it. And um, uh, and Stephen, where can our listeners find your work? Uh, so you can find me uh, on Twitter at Stephen Atwell. Uh, you can find me on WordPress and Tumblr as Race for the Iron Throne. Uh, and you can find me at Graphic Policy uh, with the People's History of the Marvel Universe. Woohoo! Yeah, and you had a really good set of things on Tumblr about Hoxpox and yes, Shindy, which you hopefully will be soon too. being like yes. mass posted onto Graphic Policy once I've actually finished. I have like two essays left to go. Yes, I'm also writing something on Hoxpox, which will be up uh, soon. I'll be posting about it on social media, so just follow me there. Fabulous. And I, Ilana, am at uh, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn on Twitter, a little bit much. And um, we will be continuing the Hoxpox conversation soon. Uh, Spencer Ackerman wanted to be able to join us tonight and is dealing with an emergency, but he'll be back and he will be talking with him about the Dawn of X books in a couple of, probably in about a month, um, once that whole initial lineup of new titles is out and we'll get to geek out with him about those. So thank you, listeners. We are on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, everywhere you are. Come back next week and keep it geeky.